Well, a sincere good morning uh, to everyone here today. Uh, as those of you who may be regular uh, may see, our pastor, our usual pastor, Ben Hatch, is away on vacation. And so um, I'm stepping in for him this morning. And we are in the midst of the last sermon uh, on a mini-series on Jonah. And, uh, and so we will surely get to that, but let's pray and come before God as we consider his word. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everybody loves a good story, right? And since time immemorial, stories have been a central part of human existence. And if you go to your local or virtual Christian bookstore nowadays, you will find there is no shortage in the number of uh, children's books or stories on Jonah. In fact, we have several in our own household, and I've brought one with me today. This is one of uh, our kids' favorite storybooks. And who wouldn't love this crazy storybook of adventure, of excitement, Here is the man of God who had been told to go to Nineveh and he disobeys. He tries to get away on a ship. And then, of course, God sends a big storm and they have to throw him into the ship and he gets swallowed up by a big fish. And then finally, as you see here on this last page, he relents and he goes to Nineveh. But most of these stories miss the point, don't they? As with most dramatic accounts in the Bible, we tend to focus on the action and the drama and the excitement and the incredibility of someone being swallowed up by a gigantic fish, and we can risk missing what God really is saying to us. And so as we come to this final chapter of Jonah and to the close of this mini-series, I really want us to take a step back and to think again about what this book really is about. I don't want us to miss the big picture this morning. There are very important spiritual lessons for us, and equally important, there are actions that we must now take in light of the book of Jonah. Now, for those who have just joined us this morning, we have a few guests. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. I want to quickly review what we've covered so far. And so three weeks ago in chapter one, we saw Jonah running away from God. We saw God's sovereignty And his power when he sent that great tempest and Jonah was thrown into the sea. And then God mercifully saved him. So the whole theme there was around God's providence and his power and his perseverance. Then in chapter 2, we saw Jonah being spat out and he prays this prayer. And we learned about what true repentance was. And at the same time, we saw hints of maybe, maybe Jonah really doesn't quite get it yet. And then last week, we saw in chapter 3, the city of Nineveh turn around, actually putting on sackcloth and ashes and repenting, and God's grace and mercy being extended to the city of Nineveh. And it was absolutely shocking, because the Assyrians were outside of the covenant, and the Assyrians were oppressors of Israel. And so God, in forgiving them and sparing them, was really doing the most unusual act in this context of the Old Testament. Now, as you can see from the sermon title this morning, the key point of this morning's message, and really of the whole book, is that God has compassion on all his creatures 
and he desires that all return to him. God has compassion on all of his creatures and he desires that all would return to him. Our message today will be divided into four parts. Firstly, we will see that Jonah gets unreasonably angry. And that's in verses 1 to 3. Then we see that God, teach, that God will teach Jonah a lesson. And that's in verses 4 to 8. Thirdly, we will see God challenging Jonah. And not just Jonah, but us too. And finally, I want to pull it all together and think, what does this mean for us? What must we do now? So with that in mind, let's turn to Jonah chapter 4 and the first part of this sermon. And straight away, as we begin this chapter, we see that Jonah was angry. Verse 1 tells us, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now remember back in chapter 2, where there were slight clues that Jonah was not really repentant in his prayer Well, now we have full confirmation and Jonah shows his true colors. You see, a person can do the will of God without actually having the right heart or attitude. And that's what we saw, uh, we see in Jonah now. He's obeying God, but his heart is not in the right place. And to help us understand this, the author of the book of Jonah is using a number of literary devices that would have been understood by the original readers. He uses things like irony and repetition. It's almost a little bit like a Shakespeare in in how Shakespeare likes to use devices. And so this phrase, it greatly displeased Jonah, can be translated literally, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. And for those who have been on this journey with us, you might remember in weeks two and weeks three, Professor Johnston explaining that Hebrew word ra'ah, which means great evil. And ra'ah was used in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to describe that evil of the Ninevites. These were horrible people. They did all kinds of atrocious war crimes. And now the writer of Jonah uses that same word ra'ah on Jonah himself. The point that he's trying to make here is is that Jonah has become also a great evil in God's sight and in need of the same punishment that the Ninevites have been. And let's make sure we understand how angry Jonah really was. This is like a child throwing the worst temper tantrum that you can imagine. The original phrase, he was angry, can be translated literally burning with anger. And in the original, it's not an adjective like English. We describe an adjective as a descriptive word, right? We say, oh, someone's angry. In the original, it's a verb. It's a moving word. It's an action verb. And it's the same verb that's used to describe Cain when he got angry with Abel. Do you remember what happened in that story, in that account? Cain was so angry that when they went out in the field and it was just the two of them alone, his dear brother, his, his own brother that he had grown up playing with and eating with and and wrestling with, he picks up a huge rock and just smashes it on his head. And that's the anger that Cain felt. And that's the anger that Jonah feels right now. But because he can't do violence against God, he does the next best thing. And he says in verse 3 to God, you might as well take my life. 
It's better for me to die than to live. But why was Jonah so angry? What made him so mad with rage that he wanted to die? Well, we see in verse 2 here that he was angry because God had acted with mercy towards the Ninevites. Now, we don't know the real root cause of this. Ben mentioned in the first week, we don't know whether Jonah was a racist or he was a patriot or he had just a totally warped sense of morality. But we, what we do see is that Jonah has the right head content, but in his heart and his, in his application, he was very wrong. He can recite perfectly that God is gracious and merciful, but yet in here, he cannot accept that God would pity anyone else other than Israel. He can't come to grips with God's character. And the fact that God would enjoy, let Nineveh enjoy the same spiritual benefits that Israel enjoys under his care. Now, let's be clear here. Nineveh was, by general consensus, deserving of punishment and much more. You can see even in museums today, stones and artifacts that describe what the Assyrians did to their enemies, and it is brutal. We can talk about war crimes that we see today, but what we saw in Assyria is, is many times worse. And what's more, they constantly oppressed Israel. And if Jonah was aware of the prophecies of Hosea and Amos at this time, he would have known that it has been prophesied that the Assyrians would one day come and defeat Israel and take them into exile. And so Jonah really had cause to hate the Assyrians and the Ninevites in particular. And so it was totally unfair in his eyes that God would have mercy on them. Now notice that Jonah felt so angry that he asked God to take his life. And this is yet another device that the author uses that the original Israelites would have picked up. He is using the very same lines that the great prophet Elijah used in 1 Kings. And so by doing that, the author is inviting us to make a comparison between Elijah and Jonah and to weigh their actions up against each other. And so I actually think it's worthwhile turning to 1 Kings chapter 19 quickly just to give us the full context of what I, Elijah was going under. If you have your Bible, turn with me. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 to 4. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets. These were the false prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of these prophets by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life from me, for I am no better than my father's. Now, can you see the difference between Elijah and Jonah? Elijah had been commanded by God to go and reform the nation of Israel, go and get rid of sin, go 
and kill all these false prophets because they have been leading my people astray. And he does just that. He was very successful in his mission and he had killed all these prophets that had turned the Israelites against God. And then he had gone depressed because he was convinced he had failed in his mission just like his fathers had failed to turn people to God. And of course he was wrong, wasn't he? In fact, he had been very successful and God had been preserving for himself his own remnant and people. In contrast, Jonah was very angry at the success of his mission, which resulted in repentance and faith. The very thing that Elijah longed for and thought he didn't get, Elijah was depressed about. But uh, Jonah, he had gotten the very same thing. He had gotten people to repent, and yet he was angry. And so the sinfulness of the people discouraged Elijah, whereas the goodness of God depressed Jonah. Think about those two characters. But the writer doesn't stop there. As if to keep on pressing on the point, the author compares Jonah's character now to that of God's character. Have a look at verse 2. Let's read it again. Jonah himself admits and says, For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Now, this description of God's character should ring a bell for us because back in chapter 2, Jonah had also mentioned God's characteristics when he prayed. But more importantly, it is how God identifies himself. Before the time when personal pronouns ever became popular in our modern culture, God had already declared his pronouns. In Exodus 34, God describes himself to Moses using very specific words. Now, when God met with Moses, you might remember this is the first time, right? They come out of Egypt and Moses was going up into the mountain and God meets with Moses. And and there's this big question, right? Remember the first time Moses sees God in the burning bush and he says, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. And we're, we're... urge to think about God's identity and who God actually is. And God could have used many different phrases to describe himself. He could have said, I'm the creator God. He could have said, I'm the most powerful being. He could have said, I'm the wisest of the wise. But instead, God chooses to use very specific terms to describe himself. Let's turn to Exodus 34 very briefly and verse 6. Exodus 24, I beg your pardon, in verse 6. This is God speaking now. This is God telling everyone who he is. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Of all the things that God could have said about himself, he chooses to self-identify by reference to his mercy and grace and love. 
Notice that God describes himself as being full of compassion, concerned about protecting and sustaining life. But also notice that God is not a doting grandfather who winks at sin, okay? Have a look at verse 7. God will by no means clear the guilty. He would much rather forgive iniquity and sin, but if you remain unrepentant and unbelieving, then you can be assured of judgment. As we saw a couple of months ago in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, when we were going through that series, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's why when the city of Nineveh repented and put on sackcloth and ashes and threw themselves at the mercy of God, he was quick to relent and to forgive. That is God's character consistently. And so as we move on from this first section, we see that Jonah's anger was completely unreasonable. Compared to the prophet Elijah, compared to God's character, Jonah's attitude and, um, and, and, and heart was evil, wicked indeed, and in need of repentance. But Jonah doesn't see it that way. And as we come to our second section, we will see Jonah's unrepentance continue, and we will see how God teaches him a lesson to reveal his own deceitfulness. In verse 4, we see God rebuking Jonah with a searching question. Are you right to be angry? But Jonah is not in a mood to respond. He refuses to recognize any suggestion that he might be wrong. And shamelessly just tries to continue justifying himself. Jonah is fed up. He's done with God. Instead of talking to God, look at verse 5. Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of that city. Now you see, Jonah made a booth or a shelter for himself on the east side of the city. I want you to imagine where, where Nineveh is, okay? We've got Israel, we've got the Mediterranean Sea on the west side. You have to reflect the mirror image. Uh, west side here, and you've got Jerusalem, and Nineveh is up here on the east. And Jonah would have come up through the Mediterranean Sea where he was spat out, and he would have gone from the west side of the city in. And if he was in any hurry to go home at all, he would go back down the west side, and back down here to Jerusalem. But instead, he exits on the other side, on the east side of Nineveh, where there is a mountainous region here. What's the point? He decides to go up high on a vantage point to look down, to see what would happen to the city. Perhaps these wicked people would actually turn back to their idolatrous ways. Or maybe God would change his mind and then actually completely destroy the city. And so Jonah is really in for a good show, isn't he? Now let me ask you this. What would you have done if you had a child showing such disobedience and hardness of heart? I think most of us here would have amped up our discipline, wouldn't we? Now again, I want to remind you, this is not just a little sin. The author of Jonah describes it using the same wickedness that has been described of Nineveh. This is a direct uh, rebellion against God's command. It's, it's direct insubordination against the declared will of God. I think we would try to push for instantaneous heart change 
and ask our child to immediately repent. Or perhaps we would get frustrated and resort to just abandonment and give them the silent treatment. Maybe we would say, fine, be like that. Don't come back to me until you're ready to repent. And we would leave our child to figure it out for themselves, how to get out of their own sin. But you see, God is not like us. God doesn't deal with Jonah as he truly deserves. And even though Jonah was done with God, God was not done with Jonah. But instead, he patiently and lovingly shows Jonah his heart condition. And so God decides to expose Jonah to a series of overwhelming experiences to drive him to see his own self-centeredness and to bring Jonah back to himself. He does this by redirecting Jonah's attention away from Nineveh towards himself. And as we read the next few verses, notice how God miraculously and providentially intervenes in ways that, uh, that are just incredible and special. Pay attention to how many, words, uh, how many times the word appointed is used in the next few verses. Now, when Jonah made this structure, it was clearly inadequate against the desert elements and against the Mesopotamian climate. He was very uncomfortable. Have a look at verse 6. And this word uncomfortable is again the same wordplay. It's again the same word ra'ah that we've been used, uh, using to describe the wickedness of Nineveh and Jonah. Okay, so he is very uncomfortable where he is right now because he is in great evil. Uh, metaphorically and physically, okay? And God demonstrates his compassion, for, his compassion for Jonah by appointing a plant that would relieve him of his ra'ah, that would relieve him of his great evil. Do you see the wordplay here? The author is pointing us to this consistent theme of God's mercy on the undeserving. Even though Jonah was full of evil, God wants to relieve him of it. But just when Jonah thought he was finally receiving God's favor, what does God do? God decides to remove the sign of that favor. In verse 7, God miraculously appoints a worm to attack the plant so that it died. In verse 8, he appoints a scorching east wind to come in from the desert. Now, again, if you know your geography and maybe you know a bit of... uh, a bit of, uh, you've studied the elements, you know that this scorching east wind would have come from the desert. It's what those people in Africa and the Mediterranean would call the Sirocco. Okay, it's a phenomenon in the the weather that can just whip up winds of up to 60 miles an hour, increase the average temperature by up to 20, 25 Fahrenheit. It is burning hot. And in some cultures, they they call it the, the blood rain as well because it brings up so much dirt and sand that it starts raining red sand. And so as the wind came in, Jonah is all of a sudden caught up in this big sandstorm uh, that, that's you know, hitting his skin and burning it at the same time. And he suffers the brunt of the elements. And with a sign of God's favor removed, Jonah droops, just like that vine droops. And he dramatically again declares in verse 8, it's better for me to die than to live. Now, do you see what God's doing here? God is acting 
exactly how Jonah would expect God to act against others. God is doing exactly what Jonah expects him to do, except to others. Jonah expects God to reward Nineveh's bad behavior with bad consequences. And so God just does that with Jonah. For Jonah's great evil, God is giving him a taste of those bad consequences. But at the same time, God is actually using kid gloves, isn't he? He shows compassion and restraint, even though Jonah deserves so much more. And yet at the same time, when Jonah gets a taste of that small uh, judgment, he immediately lapses into despair and cries out, oh, I I should just die now. As one commentator, commentator put it, the shoe that Jonah wanted Nineveh to wear was on his own foot now, and it pinched him. And so as we close this second section, we see Jonah getting closer and closer to the heart of his problem. At the same time, we must now get ready ourselves to come face to face with all that the book of Jonah has to say to us. So are you ready? Let's go to our third section. We now come to the climax of the passage and of the book as well. In these next few verses, God will lay lay bare the bigotry that's in Jonah's heart. And he will issue a challenge to Jonah and to us about our posture towards others. Let's read verses 9 to 11 together. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left hand, and also much cattle? Now, God asked Jonah a similar question that he had asked in verse 4. But notice this time, God specifically refers to this plant. God is deliberately drawing Jonah's attention to the insignificance of the plant, which had become the subject of Jonah's love and anger at the same time. In in response, Jonah tries to vindicate himself by saying, well, yeah, I have a right to be angry and angry enough to die. Jonah throws the gauntlet down. And this gives God the opportunity to deal with the heart of the matter. God says to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor and you didn't grow and which came into being a night and perished in a night. God is saying, you have so much love and concern for this dumb plant that's only been in existence for one day. Jonah, you didn't have anything to do with this plant. You didn't cultivate the soil. You didn't plant any seeds, you didn't water it, you didn't fertilize it, you didn't put sunshine on it, you didn't prune it, and you love it so much. God is clearly showing Jonah's unreasonableness here. But God doesn't stop there. Like a skillful surgeon, he keeps on cutting away and exposing Jonah's heart and the darkness that sits inside it. God says to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left hand? God is asking Jonah, if you feel so badly about this dumb plant, how do you think I feel about Nineveh? I made them in my own image. I sustain them. I feed them and make my sun to shine upon them. I cherish them. You've had this plant for one day. These people were created for eternity. This plant has no eternal significance. These people were created for all time. This plant has no consciousness or awareness. These people do, but they're so spiritually lost, they don't know their right hand from the left hand. This plant costs you nothing. These people cost me everything. Eventually, even my own son. The pain you feel, Jonah, God is saying is nothing compared to the pain that I would feel when I think of Nineveh's destruction. Friends, God is making very, very clear that his love doesn't just reside with Israel. He has made a covenant with Israel. That is true. But that doesn't mean his love doesn't go beyond Israel. You see, Jonah and the Israelites had gotten this superiority, superiority complex. They thought they were special because God had called their fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And over the years, they thought they were so exclusive. They started being indifferent to all the nations around them. In fact, they were openly hostile to the nations. And they projected their hostility onto God, thinking that God was like them, that God would also hate the nations and not pity them. But rather than showing hostility, God shows compassion. He has toiled over the whole of his creation and he extends his love to every single one of them. And notice this little side reference in verse 11 to cattle and also much cattle. I won't spend too much time on it, but commentators think that this is probably to provide a midpoint reference between the plant on the one extreme and vegetation and human beings on the other extreme and cattle or animal life in the middle. And really, the point here is just to show that God loves all of his creation. God is making the point here, as Jesus makes in, in Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. So God loves all of his creation. God has compassion on the lost, and he looks down at the city of Nineveh, and he sees sheep without a shepherd. And he hears every single heartbeat and he loves every single heart. Now what is more, I want to make a point here which may not bear on us at first impression. God had especially had sympathy for the Ninevites because compared to the Jews, they were spiritually ignorant. Now the Israelites have been chosen over hundreds of years ago and they've experienced hundreds of years of spiritual blessings and protection and advantages. They had received direct revelation from God through the, 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 um, the Ten Commandments and through the various prophets that God had sent their way. But Nineveh had not. That's why God says of these people, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. 
We can see the same spirit of compassion in Jesus when he hung crucified on the cross. Do you remember what he cries out to his father? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And we see Paul making the same confession and making that same statement in 1 Timothy 1.13. Paul says, Although formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of God overflowed me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So you see, friends, there is a difference for those who have been fed spiritually, who have received the word day after day, year after year, and for those who do not know at all any of the spiritual truths that we've been hearing. And God sympathizes with that. He doesn't treat spiritual minors with hatred or aloofness. He doesn't give them the cold shoulder. Instead, he is sympathetic into taking into account their spiritual immaturity. Now, have you noticed that the book closes with a question from God and does not actually give Jonah's response here? It's really interesting. It's only one of two books in all of the Bible that closes abruptly with a question. And friends, this is not without design, right? As we've been making the point throughout this series, the book of Jonah is quite interesting because of all the, the devices that are being used, okay? And so the book closes with a question deliberately. We're not provided with Jonah's answer because his answer doesn't matter. Instead, the book ends with a question because it's a question for you and for me. Our answer matters much more than Jonah's answer. We've had the privilege of being in this audience now, listening to what's going on with Jonah, seeing his unreasonableness, seeing his disobedience, and seeing God's compassion and mercy. And now we must turn that mirror onto ourselves. We must ask ourselves, how are we to respond? And so we've come now to see the overriding theme of the book is God's sovereign grace on undeserving sinners both Jews and Gentiles alike. How are we to respond? Broadly, I think there are three implications for us today, and I would love for you to go home and reflect even more on how are you personally to respond. Firstly, if you are not a Christian, you need to repent and you need to believe. Let's not forget how the book started. It started by God wanting to destroy Nineveh because of their sins. Remember what we read in Exodus 24, that even though God is merciful and gracious, He will by no means clear the guilty. God loves you, but He does not love your sin, and He requires you to turn away from it. The simple message of the Bible is that God created you to glorify Him and to love Him, but you've decided to live life according to your own desires and to love yourself instead. The Bible causes sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, eternal punishment. And remember God says he will not clear the guilty? Well, he doesn't. But instead he's provided a way out. And that is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on human form to die on that cross for our sins. 
Jesus came to earth and went to the cross and was crucified, and then he rose again on the third day, so that whoever repents and believes that Christ died for them will have eternal life, will have forgiveness. That is the compassion of God, friends. And so if this is you today, I urge you to turn to God today. Don't wait. You never know when God will withdraw his mercy. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when you've got it sorted out. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. And my heart really wants to speak to a particular group of people today. Those who have consistently sat under the preaching of the word, and yet who have not resolved to turn to God in repentance and faith. Perhaps you've grown up in a church family. Perhaps you've been baptized during your teenage years. And as you look at your life today, though, it looks nothing like the repentance and faith that the Bible talks about. Your life is a life of unrepentant sin. For you, I need to warn you that you're without excuse. God had sympathy on Nineveh because they were spiritually ignorant. They did not know their right hand from their left hand. But for those who are churched, who have grown up in a church, you've heard the gospel, you know it well. To you, I would repeat what Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus has come. We've got the full revelation of the Bible right here. Those who have been to church and who grew up in church do not have any excuses, and I urge you just to turn back to him to repent of your sins and to bow your knee before him. Secondly, how do we respond? Christians are to have compassion on the lost. God is telling us that he loves other people outside the Christian faith. We need to examine ourselves whether we have the sin of exclusivism. Do we really think that we alone are to receive God's compassion? Are we like Jonah, who having received grace would selfishly deny others the same mercy? Friends, I want to remind you all today that we are not elites. We don't have the exclusive right to love and grace. We're not special in any own way. We are just sinners saved by undeserving grace. And for those who have trusted in Christ, know that it was not your works or your pedigree, or your morals that saved you. God had mercy on you. And if over the years you have adopted a certain set of behaviors or culture, maybe you don't swear, you don't lie, you don't commit adultery, you're a good neighbor and good citizen in society, be reminded that these things are the fruits of your faith. They didn't save you, and they do not save you, even right now. Friends, maybe we need to completely remold our thinking and, frankly, our social orientation. 
God desires that all men everywhere be reconciled to him. His requirement is, for, is not for those who are clean to come back. Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call the not I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Yes, this includes both Republicans and Democrats. This includes those in America and those in China and those in Iraq and those across the border. It includes the white people and the black people and the people of whatever color. It includes the heavily tattooed blue-collar worker and the nicely dressed business executive. And yes, it includes murderers and prostitutes and substance abusers and adulterers. And whatever manner of sinner we can think of, because such were some of us. So Christians, give thanks to God for His mercy and grace on you. And have compassion on those who have not experienced the same spiritual blessings that you have. And thirdly, and most importantly, Christians need to be moved to action for God's kingdom. We really do need to be moved to action for God's kingdom. When we fully understand God's love for sinners, it should move us to do something. We should be proactively trying to warn others of their impending doom without Christ. We must announce God's judgment so that other people will have an opportunity to repent. To be clear, I don't think the book of Jonah requires every one of us to go and learn a language and pack up our bags and become foreign missionaries in some unknown country. But we are to be obedient to Jesus' commands in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' command must take priority over our own desires, just like God's command must take priority over Jonah's own desires. God's orders must override our own prejudice and our own preferences. Now, I know many of us will put up all kinds of excuses for our lack of action. Maybe you're one of them today. Maybe you say, I don't have enough time. I've got too much going on. Or maybe you say, I don't know how to. Or maybe you say, I don't have enough non-Christian friends in my circle. But let's be honest here. All of the barriers that we throw up, are they really legitimate? And are they fair compared to the unfathomable value that God places on the lost? Maybe if we are being honest with ourselves, we don't obey the Great Commission because we don't care for the lost. Maybe we're like Jonah. We actually dislike our Ninevites. Perhaps we need to admit that we really don't need to see the world saved. Or maybe we're so happy enjoying all the spiritual comforts of being a Christian that we've grown lazy. We believe we have a ticket to heaven. And so for the rest of our life, we want to avoid conflict. We want to be comfortable. We want to enjoy the material wealth that God has given to us and just live easily into retirement. 
We would much rather be going fishing or golfing or tennis or whatever hobby that you have rather than worry about God's kingdom. Friends, if this is you today, you need to come before God to repent and ask for his forgiveness. And here's something simple you can do this afternoon. As you go home today, I want you to pick up a piece of paper and a pen. And I just want you to write down two names, two names who you know do not know God. And then just one day a month, invite one of those people out to coffee or lunch and have an intentional conversation about their spiritual state. And if you do that for a year, you would have reached two people six times over in a year. And if the 40 or 50 people do this, all of us do this to two people, there will be 100 lost souls who would have received God's message of both judgment and mercy and love. So friends, as we close out this book and this series, I plead with you, please, please don't let this just be another good story. Please respond to God's question to you. May God have mercy on us and help us to have the same love and grace for others as he has on us. Let's pray.